0: Pele, Roberto Baggio, Johan Cruyff, and Zinedine Zidane. All football icons in their respective nations, and indeed, all around the world. But what are the stars of smaller nations? Appearance centurions, or prolific goalscorers who help put their country on the map, and whose accolades have just as much luster as those household names? Today, on The Eleven, we've done quite a bit of digging to bring you the definitive National Icons 11.
1: Hello, Ben. Hello, Arthur. Yes, we've we've dug. I mean, we really have dug deep here into the the history of football in the Faroe Islands and Armenian football legends to bring this episode to you. And there's some names that hold a certain degree of nostalgia as well.
0: We're employing a 3-4-3 formation, which is typically the formation we choose when we are struggling for defenders. Yeah. <laughs> We're slightly is. top heavy.
1: So, and in this um, case, it's also the chosen formation of Guadeloupe throughout football history. So uh, <laughs> very appropriate. At 11 pods is our Twitter handle. We do welcome people getting in touch just to let us know that people actually listen to this thing. It's the word and not the number.
0: Okay, starting us off between the sticks, Ben, who is our national icon goalkeeper?
1: Well, if I say Estonia, who do you think of?
0: Mark Poom, of course.
1: Well, that's correct. It is Mark Poom, uh, famed for actually scoring for Derby County during his time in the Premier League. Mark (laughs) Poom is an absolute legend in Estonia, as it turns out. He's their most capped player ever. 120 games for the national team he was their captain for many years uh, and he actually started his career um, in the club scene out in Estonia as well playing for Lovid and Flora uh, and Sport Tallinn. He won Estonian Footballer of the Year six times in 93, 94, 97, 98, 2000 and 2003 Uh, but unbelievably he hasn't won it the most times Someone has won it seven times. Do you know who that is? Uh, Absolutely no idea, I'm afraid. It's Ragnar Klavan. No. Yeah. He's he's rubbish. (laughs) I know. But he has been the the peak of Estonian football in more recent times and no one has matched him.
0: Oh, my gosh. But that says,
1: although he doesn't win that award explicitly, he was named Estonia's golden player. Uh, Basically, to celebrate UEFA's 50th anniversary in 2004, each of its member associations was asked to name its single most outstanding player of the previous 50 years. Uh, And Mark Poom was the winner for Estonia. Uh, England, out of interest, they nominated Bobby Moore as theirs. On the 26th of March 1997, Poom joined Derby County for a reported transfer fee of £595,000 and he soon became a fan favourite, attracting the chant
2: Poom
1: before games. Uh, which sounded somewhat like booing, which probably confused the Estonian international. Uh, But he was very much liked by his colleagues and he did actually go on to win their Player of the Year award in 99-2000. He scored a goal for Sunderland during his time in the Premier League against Derby County, which was described by the commentator, as the best goal ever scored by a goalkeeper in the 90th minute on his first match against his former club,
0: which... That's the sort of thing, I'm sorry, that's the sort of thing that football cliches Adam Hurrow would be all over. I mean, that is just just needlessly specific.
1: (laughs) I think it's the only goal that could ever be put in that category. Um, But who won it? After this moment, he had an ale named after him uh, called the Puminator, which doesn't sound very (laughs) appetising at all. Um, And he would go on to play for Arsenal and Watford during the rest of his career. He also had a famously prominent jawline, Mark Poom, and the band Half Man Half Biscuit included reference to this in their song Left Lyrics in the Practice Room. Uh, They sing... You drink too much, a ronge boom. Your jaw juts out like Mark Poom. Dr. Desperate, I presume you left these in the waiting room. So uh, inspired. Yeah, really, really great <laughs> lyrics there, which sent me in a whole rabbit hole about football players starring in, in music songs. And I found barcelona the band have written a song about casey keller but that's one for another episode of the 11 anyway (laughs) mark poom uh, is someone that will be fondly remembered by premier league nostalgists but also someone who has got hero status in his native estonia
0: he actually made many many more premier league appearances than i thought he had for some reason he'd stuck in my mind as potentially a sub goalkeeper but 146 appearances for Derby County, no arguing with that. Also, a bit of a random one, but another Estonian name that sticks in my mind for some reason is a striker called Andres Opa. Who okay, I've play- never heard, he heard of him. He played for Rhoda JC in the Eredivisie. And I don't really know why the name sticks in the mind. Potentially it's because he was a football manager signing of mine mm. um, or something along those
1: lines. But he also made over 100 appearances for Estonia well we've got 3 playing at center back so arthur do you want to name the first one
0: i'm going to go for roy Cipollina. <laughs> <laughs> i just think he deserves to make it into an 11 for his commitment to gibraltar one of the first names i think of when it comes to gibraltar football is perhaps unfairly danny higginbottom yes um but he only made three appearances for them toward the end of his career. The stalwart who's been there through it all is Roy Cipollina. He's proudly skippered the side ever since they became members of UEFA in 2013 and then FIFA three years later. And he's still going strong, aged 38. Unbelievably, Gibraltar drew their first ever game 0-0 with Slovakia, which is extraordinary. And he's played 52 times, scoring two goals, which is their all-time second highest goal scorer. (laughs) (laughs) Cipollino was born in Enfield in North London, but he moved to Gibraltar age four and then moved back to England age 12 and attended Southgate School, where he featured heavily for the school football team and their offshoot, the Southgate Saints. During his time at Southgate, he had trial periods at Luton Town, and also played a single trial game for Leighton Orient. So he almost made it into the Football League, mm. but he moved back to Gibraltar at the age of 18. Gibraltar as a nation have played 58 times in their history, and they've won six and drawn six, which I think is extraordinary considering it's basically just a rock. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it's, he has spent 15 years with the Lincoln Red Imps, and that's yielded 13 league titles. Their consistent title victories have given them many cracks at the whip in European competition, and they pulled off some incredible results. In Brendan Rodgers' first competitive match as Celtic boss, they beat Celtic 1-0 at home in the Champions League qualifier second round. Sadly, they lost the second leg 3-0, but what an unbelievable achievement to beat the Scottish champions. On the 26th of August 2021, Lincoln became the first team from Gibraltar to qualify for the group stage in a European competition as they defeated Riga FC 4-2 in aggregate, Uh, and Cipollina was the first scorer in extra time of the tie, having come on as a substitute. The most remarkable thing is that Roy and all of his teammates have full-time jobs. Football's just something on the side for them. Roy's a customs officer while his teammates are a bit of a mixed bunch. There's an electrical engineer, a lawyer, a store clerk, two policemen and a fireman, amongst some other jobs. And Roy's cousins, Joseph and Kenneth Cipollina, also play internationally for Gibraltar. So it's a bit of a family affair. Mm. And one that I just thought was worthy of mention, because Roy has played almost every game for Gibraltar since their inception as a football nation, and is always there through thick and thin He's that rock at the back. And I look forward to him being a rock in this 11.
1: He is the rock of Gibraltar, Roy Cipollina. And another interesting fact, uh, I have, and I don't know whether you have as well, Arthur, met a Gibraltar international, Jake Gosling. Oh, of course. Exeter City legend well he played <laughs> for Exeter city and um i interviewed him once just before he decided to call on his gibraltar heritage to represent the uh, the national side who's playing alongside roy at the back ryan donk <laughs> <laughs> so um, <laughs> I it, just in case we've got any Surinamese people listening to this podcast, I'm not necessarily suggesting that Ryan Donk is currently a legend in his native Suriname. But I think he has the potential to be, and there's an interesting story behind this. He's an athletic, tall, commanding defensive utility player who still plays in Turkey for Kasim Passa, aged 35, Uh, And he's the current captain, as I said, of the Suriname national team, which is a Dutch colony off South America. Although interestingly, they actually play their matches in CONCACAF against North American sides and Central American sides. They're not brilliant. In fact, they're ranked 139th in the world. Um, It's participated in qualifying matches for the FIFA World Cup since 1962, but they've never qualified for a final. Uh, And their strongest showing was in 1978 when they reached the final group stage of qualifying. But the case of Surinamese football is an interesting one, and that's because it's a story of what might have been. Born in Suriname and eligible to play for their national team were... Rude Hullet, Frank Reichard, Edgar Davids, Clarence Seydorf, Patrick Clivert, Mario Melchiot, Jorginho Wijnaldum, Virgil van Dijk and Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank. However, because Suriname is essentially a Dutch colony, the Dutch national side snaps up all their best talent. So they've all gone on to play for Holland rather than their native Suriname. That's incredible. A
0: similar example perhaps could be the French team taking all the talent from Réunion, like Dimitri Payet and, uh, and mm. players like that. It's very unfair. And I guess, is that what you're saying? You're saying Ryan Donk in this show of solidarity with Suriname
1: is, is therefore a national icon? Well, that's what I'm starting to get at, I suppose, Um Dutch colonialism has left a bit of a bitter taste in the mouth of the government at Suriname uh, and they've actually banned players that go over to Holland to play domestic football from representing the Suriname national team. But this has been eased a little bit in recent years. Ryan Donk played for the the Dutch under 21 side, but he has since discovered, if you like, that he's not good enough to play for the Dutch (laughs) men's setup. So um, has opted to play for Suriname and he's probably their best player. They've also got the likes of Florian Joseph Zoon and Tiaron Cherry, who played for QPR for a while playing for them. He made his debut as team captain just this year, actually, in a World Cup qualifier against the Cayman Islands and scored The second goal in a 3-0 victory. Um, And he has a pretty high calibre for a player for Suriname. He played 100 plus games for Club Bruges and Galatasaray during his career. Uh, And if you remember the name and you're uh, an English football fan, it might be because he played 16 games for West Brom in 2009, but couldn't prevent them from getting relegated. He's a bit of a character off the pitch at Galatasaray. Apparently their sort of owner, if you like, chairman said, we're sick and tired of Donk sex parties. The players are not training properly. They come back having had a wild night out the night before and they cannot perform physically because they've been doing it elsewhere. So Ryan Donk or Ryan Bonk, if you like, um, is a Uh bit of a character. But yeah, I wanted to kind of raise the profile of this sort of lost generation of Surinamese footballers and suggests that if Ryan Donk does continue to play for another five or six years captaining the national side, he could become the best Surinamese football player of all time.
0: I love that shout. Another bit of interesting information is that Jimmy Floyd's nephew, Nigel Hasselbank, currently plays for, for Suriname, having oh, really? scored seven goals and seven appearances, which is fantastic. And just a bit of history here. Uh, first of all, the Wikipedia page is telling me that the Guyanas are really not very good at football. Suriname's biggest victories were 9-0 in three games against French Guyana and mm. British Guyana. So yeah. not great footballing nations. And perhaps a bit of salt in the wound being their biggest ever defeat was a 9-2 defeat to the Netherlands, which must have been pretty yeah. heartbreaking for them.
1: Although two goal scorers in that game, that's a proud moment for them. Chip and Donk, this is already looking like quite the force at the back, but we need one more name. I've chosen Premier League icon, Radi Jaidi. Oh, good. Well, that has solidified things now.
0: He started his career with Esperance de Tunis in his home country of Tunisia, who were the most successful team in the country. He made 288 appearances, scoring 20 goals, and was the only player at the time to have won all four of Africa's cup competitions, winning domestic league cups and the African Champions League. Wow. Standing at six foot four inches, Bolton was the surprise destination for someone who Closing in on their 29th birthday, but he did move there in the summer of 2004, becoming the first of his countrymen to play in the Premier League. He was a part of the Bolton squad, which qualified for the Europa League for the first time in their history in 2005. They finished sixth, and he formed a mean partnership with Bruno and Gotti at Bolton. What an experience! Incredibly impressive. Exactly. They conceded just 44 goals. He played 27 games. He scored on five occasions. That season, he grabbed his first goal for the club against Arsenal in a 2-2 draw, leaving Highbury that day with a Man of the Match award and a bottle of champagne he couldn't drink for religious reasons. <laughs> uh, few put more fear into opposition defenders than when Jaidi came up for a set piece. He could outmuscle the best of them and leap higher than anyone in the vicinity. He developed a bit of a knack of scoring against the big sides. He scored the equaliser when Bolton came back from 2-0 down at Stamford Bridge. His time may have been brief at Bolton. He made only 43 appearances in two years, but his impact was immense. He then enjoyed three years at Birmingham, helping them first to promotion from the championship and then sadly suffering relegation. And I was delighted to, to see him finish his career at Southampton. He helped... Saints to promotion from League One and the Johnson's Paint Trophy, forming an excellent partnership with Jose Font at the back, adding real steel to the back line. Um, he now has ambitions to become the Premier League's first African manager, having done a stint at Southampton as under-23 manager, and he now manages back in Tunisia at his first side, Esperance, uh, picking up a bit of Esperiance. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He has 105 caps internationally. He was part of Tunisia's World Cup squads in 2002 and six, And he won the Af- African Cup of Nations in 2004. So I just see him as a complete national icon, a Tunisian legend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm rather disappointed that he didn't make it over to England a little bit earlier. It's quite unusual to see a player of his quality play. I'm not disrespecting the Tunisian League and saying that Really, the quality of domestic African football isn't quite as high as European football. And it
1: would be nice to see him over here a little bit earlier, really. Yeah, I mean, when I think back about Jaidi and and Gotti, I I do just think of two Amazons at the back for Bolton during their most successful years. So by all accounts, a a very decent player. Um, And I don't think Tunisia have produced the same since, to be honest.
2: In nicely towards Shagini, gives
1: Birmingham the lead. Always a threat. And such an easy opening goal there for Birmingham.
0: So to break up our eleven, I've decided that now is my chance to get my own back on Ben. <laughs> uh, obviously, I had my mind blank on the name of David Ginola, which was a little bit embarrassing. And I'm hoping that Ben will become a rabbit in the headlights similar to myself when I give him a spot the national icon based off their career
1: path quiz. Oh, that's a pithy name. It might need a bit of work, but we'll see. So you ready, Ben? I am ready. So you're going to give me the kind of the clubs, are you, that they've played for? Correct. Let's see how you do. Number one, they started
0: their career in 1995 with Christchurch United, played 96 games and scored 12 goals. He then moved to DC United in 2001, playing 81 times. Then we got to see him in the Premier League between 2005 and 12. He played for Blackburn Rovers, making 172 appearances, scoring eight goals. He then had a very brief, unproductive spell at Tottenham Hotspur in 2012, making five appearances, and finished his career at QPR, where he made 21 appearances.
1: Oh. Oh, oh, oh! That's not that's not fun. Um, it's not easy. No. I Think starting
0: his career at Christchurch United. I think I've Zealand. got
1: I've got an idea. I'm going to go for okay. um, centre back Ryan Nelson. Very good, Ben.
0: Well done. That's wonderful. Good. You got there. I got there. <laughs> <laughs> right, the second one of this quiz. He started his career in 1995 as well at Volyn Lutsk, making 62 <coughs> appearances. He then moved to Shakhtar Donetsk, the biggest club side in his country, in 1998, 227 appearances. 2007-2009, he went to Zenit Saint Petersburg. Then 2009 mm-hmm. to 13, he was at Bayern Munich, and then 13 to 15 back to Zenit Saint Petersburg before. Finishing his career with 34 appearances at Kairat. Oh dear.
1: I'm not sure I know this. I'm it's gonna I'm one. gonna have a guess at a Ukrainian Anatoly Timoshuk.
0: <laughs> Wonderful, Ben. Is well that done.
1: right? Oh that fantastic. is incredible knowledge. <laughs> I didn't know he played for most of those teams. I just had an idea he played for Bayern Munich.
0: Yeah, I think Bayern was probably his most famous stint, but very, very well figured out. Well done. Nice. The next one, started his career in 1999 with Victoria. He then went on in 2003 to 2008 at Olympia, making 100 appearances. He then had two loans at Wigan Athletic in 2008. Before signing permanently for them and staying there until 2013, he made 148 appearances. He then went to Hull City in 2013 to 15, 35 appearances, before another loan to Wigan Athletic, six appearances. He then went to America and finished his career at Colorado Rapids, then FC Dallas, and then Houston Dynamo. Any I think ideas? I've got an
1: idea. Yeah. I, I'm. Yep gonna go for a honduran fullback maynor figueroa well done ben thank you're, you you're rifling through these oh, too easy you're showing it's me up great it's great no <laughs> such mind blank for me
0: then the next one started his career in 1987 with mm-hmm. repass he then went to hjk making 27 appearances in 1991 he then signed for Mipa, 18 appearances and then the most lengthy spell of his career at Ajax in 1992, making 159 appearances and scoring 91 goals. He then went to Barcelona, Liverpool, and then back to Ajax, and then to Lati, Hansa Mm. Rostock in Germany, Malmo FC in Sweden, before making zero appearances, but signing for Fulham in 2008. And then finishing his career again at Lati and HJK.
1: Now I think HJK is in Helsinki, so I'm going to go for Finnish attacking midfielder Yari Littmanen. Correct. Four out of four. I'm flying. Easy. <laughs> I am flying. We're going to finish here with a
0: quite difficult one, I think. So props to you if you manage to get five out of five. His career started in 1996 with Panathinaikos, making 118 appearances. Uh, In 2003, he left for Inter Milan, where he made 21 appearances in two years. He then signed for Benfica, making 45 appearances, before moving back to Panathinaikos in 2007, making 133 appearances and scoring 16 goals. And then he finished his career at Fulham, from 2012 to 14, making 39 appearances.
2: Hmm.
1: I'm not 100% sure, and I don't know this chap's first name, but I think it could be Karagounis. Correct. Georgios
0: Karagounis. Well done. Fantastic.
1: Well, that (laughs) was... Five out of five. I made that look very easy, Arthur, didn't I?
0: You did indeed. I thought you might get a bit confused between Karagounis, Zagarakis and Bassanas.
1: Yes, to be I was quite thinking interchangeable. I was thinking through I I knew Caragunis played for Benfica, so that was my my thinking, but um oh, I'm chuffed with 5 out of 5.
0: Let us know how you get on at home. Sadly I can't offer up the co-host chair. Because ben <laughs> did get 5 out of 5, which is incredibly impressive. But do let us know if you manage to match that. And let us know if you have any potential career paths to share with us that we can test ourselves on.
1: Yeah, we'll get Arthur to try that and see if his job (laughs) is still on the line. So we've got our goalie, we've got our three at the back, four across the midfield now, and we're going to start with the left-sided midfield player. So
0: I've gone for a player who is currently still playing... He's only 29 years old, so perhaps not so nostalgic, but I think he'll be remembered for coming to the nation's prominence, really, 10 years ago or so. It's Omar Abdul Rahman.
1: (laughs) Yes, I've seen him live. (laughs) Have you actually? Yeah, bizarrely. I saw him live playing playing for his nation, who is... United Arab Emirates. And that was at the uh, Olympic Games. When it was in London, they played against Team GB and I watched him play for them.
0: Oh, very good. Well, you you can provide a live scout report shortly. Yeah. He was born in Saudi Arabia to Yemeni parents. Omar honed his skills playing street football with his three brothers. Saudi giants Al-Halal were the first to show genuine interest, but it was Al-Ain, 600 miles across the border, who offered a more appealing package to the youngster and his family. They not only signed Omar, but they also gave contracts to his brothers, Mohammed and Khaled, and provided the Abdul Rahman's with Emirati citizenship. The curly-haired, silky-skilled playmaker stepped in to fill Jorge Valdivia's boots when the Chilean left our line for Palmeiras in Brazil and soon found himself as one of the main men. At the end of the next season... Uh, The London 2012 Olympics awaited, as you say, Ben. It was here that he showed the world what he could do. He delivered a sumptuous assist with the outside of his left boot in UAE's 2-1 defeat to Uruguay, uh, which was a pretty plucky performance considering how good that nation is. And that was the sort of skill that saw him dubbed the Arabian Messi and made him appear on the front cover of pro-evo soccer alongside Neymar. It was truly... (laughs) The next big thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Off the back of his exploits at the London Olympics, Man City had seen enough to uh, invite him to train with the likes of Sergio Aguero and Carlos Tevez. His two-week trial culminated in an apparent four-year contract offer from Man City, with the club's then-Academy chief, Brian Marwood, saying he impressed everybody. But the reported offer broke down due to a wrangle over work permits, and his uneasiness at prospective loans in Belgium to circumnavigate the red tape. He said, once Colo Torre saw me, he asked, are you the UAE player? And I was surprised he even knew me. He told me, you have the skill and the potential and are here to sign a contract. And I told him, inshallah, I hope to if things go well. But sadly, as I say, it broke down. The BBC reported that Daniel Sturridge told him he was talented enough to play in Europe. Luis Suarez asked to swap shirts with him. And Ryan Giggs sought him out after that match that you watched against Great Britain in the Olympics to pass him his shirt. So he was clearly a player on everybody's radar. Former Inter Milan player Sabri Lamucci said, In my opinion, he can play in any league in Europe. Everything he does when he gets the ball alerts the whole stadium because you you can expect something good is coming up. He's a fantastic player. Part of the reason he didn't move abroad, I think comes down to his nation's rulers' reluctance to allow him. Omar was starring in his home country uh, at the 2013 Gulf Cup. He starred for UAE. He was named player of the tournament, And that saw him gifted a substantial financial bonus and a Bugatti Veyron. So I think Mm. they were trying to buy his loyalty to an extent. But sadly, as his career has gone by, he's accumulated these injuries uh, in recent years. He does still play, having signed for Al-Ali in February 2021. uh, But he's only 29 and has yet to play for them, having made 26 appearances in total in the last four years. With 11 goals and 74 internationals and all that media acclaim, he's undoubtedly one of Asia's greatest players and certainly a national icon. But it all could have been so different for him. He could have potentially put his nation truly on the global uh, map with his ability, his skill, his excellent free kicks. And he had a bit of a penchant for... uh,
1: Panenka penalties as well <laughs> uh, which we enjoy on this podcast for sure. Yeah he was he was a great player when I saw him live he just breezed past the opposition um, and I did notice that Arabian Business has ranked him at 25th in its list of the 100 most powerful Arabs under 40. So um, even still there seems like there's a business deal to be done for Omar Abdul Rahman but certainly an icon. Out in the United Arab Emirates. Alongside Omar is someone who did make the excursion over to the UK to play, Uh, a physical and imposing central midfielder who played 31 games for Sunderland uh, between 2009 and 2010. It's the Albanian Lorik Kanat. Oh, yes. A very, very good player. Was he Marseille as well? He was Marseille, absolutely. Um, And he actually captained them at quite a young age, just 24 years old. When Habib Bey, uh, another Premier League legend, moved to Newcastle, he took over as captain. And in his first season, uh, he led his team uh, in 34 of the 38 matches, playing a full 90 minutes. Um, they came third in Liga 1 and secured qualification for the Champions League. So he was a, a player of real pedigree and arguably one of the best ever to come out of Albania. He was really highly rated by Sunderland fans. Um, he was excellent in that year and guided them to a mid-table finish. And it's not surprising, really, because before he arrived in Tyneside, he had played in the top divisions of France, Italy, Turkey. Uh, He'd represented Paris Saint-Germain, Sunderland, Galatasaray, Lazio, Nantes, Olympique Marseille and obviously had played a lot for the Albanian national team. They're not the greatest side in the world, Albania, um, but he is the most capped player of all time for them with 93 caps played out over a 13-year period. And it probably climaxed in 2016 when he represented Albania in their first major tournament, Euro 2016. Don't know whether you remember much of that, uh, Arthur, but he was actually sent off in quite bizarre fashion. It was a game against Switzerland, which also played a part in Canna's life, which I'll talk about in a moment. But it was one of the most bizarre sendings off I think I've ever seen. He sort of stumbled as a through ball was played and then almost flopped like a dead fish to try and stop (laughs) the ball from running through to the striker. But in doing so, caught the ball with his arm uh, and was shown the red card. So it didn't quite end how he would have liked to have done for Canna. But by that stage, he was already a national icon, really. I mentioned about Switzerland and his past. His family actually fled war-torn Kosovo when he was young and he became a refugee and they fled to Switzerland, which is where he really started his football career. He said, I always want to give back to my family, my people, my country. That's the most important thing to me. My aim, my target, my goal. I always want to be the top man as a footballer and I want to give a good image of my country. Albania doesn't have many famous people, so it's important that when you can, you must try and give a good image for people to follow. So there's a great deal of pride that's kind of come from his quite difficult upbringing. Uh, and it, for that reason, actually, Adnan Januzai, the ex-Manchester United player, cites Loric Kanner as one of his first football heroes.
0: Great story. I think Albania is another nation similar to Suriname, perhaps, who lose a lot of their talent. Mm. Uh, for Switzerland, we've seen actually at the Euros recently Granit Xhaka playing a starring role for Switzerland. Uh, his brother Taulant Xhaka does play for Albania. He's one mm. of their better players. But also Zerdan Shakiri, I believe, had Kosovan Albanian parents, uh, so could have declared for Albania as well. And it must be frustrating seeing all that talent go to another nation when you yourselves are struggling to make an impact on the international stage
1: 100 um, percent. i was just impressed to read how positively sunderland fans spoke about lorik canna rare obviously to see an albanian in the premier league and he was one that that left an indelible mark on a team alongside canna arthur
0: i've gone for javid nakunam <laughs>
1: <Right. laughs> where have you been digging
0: there in the wake of Cristiano Ronaldo breaking the record for the most international goals in men's football, there's been a lot of talk about Ali Dai, uh, mm. the previous top scorer with 109 goals in 148 internationals. That is without a doubt an incredible achievement. But I feel like Javid Nakunam's achievements are often overlooked. So I'd like to wow. give a nod to his fellow countrymen.
1: I mean, football in Iran is, is an underrated thing, isn't it? We've seen the likes of Andranic, Taymorian come over to the Premier League, but I don't think Nakunem ever did play in England, did he?
0: No, he didn't. My attentions were first drawn to this classy midfielder as he was a favourite signing of a friend of ours, Will Hopcroft, on Football Manager 2011. (laughs) He was a classy defensive midfielder. He's nicknamed Neku and he liked to break up play and sit as a typical Kind of midfield anchor man. In addition to controlling the midfield, the Iranian captain also had an eye for goal from range, very similar perhaps to the style of play of Frank Lampard. He began his career with pass in Iran, playing 179 times before a move to UAE, first with Al Wada and then Al Sharjah. After his performances at the 2006 World Cup, where Iran were not impressive. They had just one draw from three games against Angola, but they were in a tough group that included Portugal. But he played well, and he was linked to the likes of Hertha Berlin and Lyon, but he eventually joined Osasuna, thus becoming the first Iranian to be signed by a Spanish club. After a particularly successful first season, he began to attract interest from other European sides, notably Scotland's Rangers, who had an offer rejected. He stayed at Osasuna for six years, during which he played 149 times, scoring 24 goals, including, memorably, a 120th-minute winner against Bordeaux in the UEFA Cup knockout rounds. By the end of his time at Osasuna, he was club captain and the highest-paid player, which is a testament to the immense success he had in Europe. And after a stint back in his homeland at Esteglau, And in Kuwait, he returned for another season at Osasuna, proving he loved the place. I feel Osasuna fans were immensely fond of him, and he played brilliantly for them. Internationally, he's also Iran's most capped player ever, making 151 appearances and scoring 39 goals. In addition to that successful 2006 World Cup, he helped Iran win the 2002 Asian Games and the 2004 West Asian Football Federation Championship. (laughs) and also represented the country in the 2004 7 and 11 AFC Asian Cups so without a doubt one of his nation's greatest centre midfielders and as I say just often overlooked considering Ali Da'i's brilliant goal scoring records
1: yeah I remember around the time of the, um, the World Cup in 2006 in Germany Um, There's an article I found in ESPN, actually, where they they talk about the Fab Four uh, and they actually include Javed Nakunam in a list of kind of four of Asia's greats all coming together to play in this tournament. Javed Nakunam, Park Ji-sung, Shunsuki Nakamura and Mohamed Noor, um, who were all playing in that tournament. So he was held in really high regard, kind of in the mid noughties. It's a shame we never got to see him in England I think certainly Iranians, as much as they herald Ali Dia, will always have a soft spot for Javed Nakunam as well. So I like that pick. That's a good one.
0: And on the right, Ben, who's finishing off our midfield?
1: I've gone for a player from the USA, a national icon from the USA, but perhaps not one that we've thought about for a little while. uh, And that's Kobe Jones. Yes, very good. he, He had dreadlocks, did he? He did have dreadlocks. You're absolutely right. And he's actually the most capped player of all time for the United States national team, which for a winger, I think is quite impressive. Um, He was diminutive. He was tricky. He was quick. Like you said, he had this distinctive hairstyle uh, and he became a member of the National Soccer Hall of Fame, which kind of recognizes some of America's greats. He started his career in the UK at Coventry City in 1994. um, But by all accounts, he was pretty hopeless. I've I've found this article from Kevin Darling, who writes some great stuff. And he wrote this about him. In the late winter of 1995, he found himself in the queue at McDonald's in Coventry City Centre, wearing a big brown wax jacket. He looked homeless. That's what the Premier League can do to a man. Coventry City's club shopped at the unprecedented step of launching a Kobe Jones t-shirt amid what one fan on the Sky Blues Talk Forum remembers as a wave of expectation about his arrival. He was one of those signings that was either going to be legendary or shocking, and sadly, it was the latter on this occasion. Ability 5 out of 10, haircut 7 out of 10 was his summary. Kobe really struggled in the Premier League. He was perhaps too young for it, um, but he really made a name for himself by returning to the MLS this was in 1996. So very early in his career, there was the boom around American football and he followed it. He went to L.A. Galaxy and he would play over 300 times for Los Angeles, scoring 70 goals. So really, he was the poster boy of the boom of American soccer. He was he was the man that was was fronting it and playing such a big role in in increasing its popularity in the country. So if you go to America, Kobe Jones is held in really high regard, probably helped by the fact that he's a presenter on one of their main sports channels as well. He was actually introduced as one of three legends of world football when he helped uh, conduct the draw for the 2010 World Cup. It was Kobe Jones, Pele and Franz Beckenbauer, which... (laughs) sort of feels like he's got in the wrong company or maybe the third name on the list was ill and he had to step <laughs> yeah. in um it's a bit unusual uh, but i suppose in america he kind of is held in that regard uh he played for them in the 1992 olympics and he also played for them in three world cups in 94 98 and 2002 Goliath, which is a, a kind of blog out there, voted him the fourth best US player of all time, uh, which was a countdown that was was won by someone who played in the Premier League too. Any guesses, Arthur? No
0: guesses from me. I'm it's, just going to make a fool out of myself.
1: It's Landon Donovan, who was voted oh, the best yes. US player of all time. But um, Kobe Jones, perhaps one of the most noteworthy. And I think if you're, if you're thinking of national icons, then he has to be considered... And deserves a place on the right hand side.
0: Absolutely. It's also a bit of a an unusual route to becoming a, in their terms, a soccer legend in America, mm. because most of those players who make successes of themselves, it's almost a rite of passage. You have to come over and display your skills in Europe. You know, mm. you look at the likes of their current team, their stars are Giovanni Reina, Borussia Dortmund, Christian Pulisic for Chelsea, Weston McKenney. There's so many of them that have to really demonstrate their skill in Europe, and Kobe wasn't impressive in Europe, returned and made basically a huge impact on the MLS, and is a national icon as a result. Well, Japan's best player has skied one. What about the UAE's best? Oba
2: Rahman can he beat Kawashima and give the UAE the lead in this shootout? Oh, he can in the cheekiest manner possible. The Penenka—that's the confidence of this kid.
0: So up front, we have two strikers from Ben and myself, and then another is up for grabs. I'm going to start things off
1: and pick
0: Marion's Pahars.
1: Oh, a Southampton player. What a surprise.
0: Well, indeed, I couldn't avoid it, really. When he was about eight years old, Júrius Andreevs, a coach from Skonto, visited his school, as a result of which Pahas decided to play football. His football career began with Skonto in 1995, and it started with a bang. He scored eight goals in nine games, uh, which he followed up with 12 the following season. As he soon became a regular in the Latvian national team, In his prime, he was dubbed the Latvian Michael Owen. So if you can imagine, similar in stature, not particularly tall, but incredibly nippy with an incredible finish. In the 1998 season, he scored 19 goals in 26 games for Sconto, attracting the attentions from bigger clubs. He had trials with Salernitana in Italy, Werder Bremen in Germany and Salzburg in Austria. But he was recommended to Southampton's manager, Dave Jones, by Gary Johnson, who was, bizarrely, I didn't know this, the manager of the Latvian national team at the time. Really? <laughs> yeah. it's odd. He had a trial for Southampton in a reserve team match against Oxford United. And talk about the ideal trial. He scored a perfect hat-trick in the 7-1 victory. <laughs> <laughs> and so Southampton agreed a fee of around £800,000. And despite difficulties obtaining a work permit and objections from the PFA, these problems were overcome and he joined the Saints in March 1999, becoming the first Latvian to play in the Premier League. At the time, Saints were desperately battling relegation and Paha's impact was immense. He scored the equaliser off the bench in the 3-all draw with Blackburn and both goals in their final day victory over Everton that guaranteed survival. So he immediately made an impact on the South Coast and worked his way into fans' hearts. His time on the South Coast had some glorious moments. He scored two goals against Liverpool, orchestrating a comeback from 3-0 down. And he scored a wonderful goal in a 3-0 victory over Portsmouth. Talk about a way to endear yourself still further to the fans. He had 43 goals in 137 league appearances, which was Unspectacular, but largely born out of Glenn Hoddle's insistence on playing him a bit deeper. Unsurprisingly, the closer to the centre circle he played, uh, the more the goals dried up. And later in his Saints career, sadly, injuries caught up with him. He was eventually released by Southampton after three further seasons of injury frustration. These injury problems were a major reason behind him only making only making 75 appearances for his nation. Uh, which does actually pale in comparison with some of his contemporaries, but still is impressive nonetheless. He was, however, manager of Latvia from 2013 to 17, winning the 2014 and 16 Baltic Cups. I just feel he's a player who was so incredibly talented. He had a brilliant finish. And were it not for those injuries, his career could have been so much more. A generational talent for Latvia, who could have been even better.
1: Yeah, I think it's surprising that Latvia is a country that hasn't produced that many great footballers over the years. I mean, I know that there's there's quite a lot of corruption and bribery in Latvian football. That's the kind of the rumour on the street. And they have had problems because their most popular club side, Skonto FC, actually went bankrupt and now ceased to exist. So in terms of the support of football in Latvia, that had a a horrible effect on it. That said, they are the only Baltic country or so-called Baltic nation to have qualified for a major tournament. That was back in 2004, but they did get knocked out in the group stages. From memory in that tournament, they had the
0: group of death, really, I think. They had a very tough tournament. They had a good striker actually called Maris Vepakovskis, who mm. is potentially the other great striker, who I think is their all-time leading goal due to the fact that he played many more games for, for his country than Marians Bahars. But it's certainly a nation that does lack loads of good footballers. And Marians Bahars really set himself aside as one of their all-time greats. Alongside him, we have
1: Sunil Chetri of India, Okay. Yeah. I mean,
0: tell me about tell me about Sunil.
1: Sunil is a wonderful man. He's 37 years old and he is still playing. He is the fourth highest international goalscorer amongst active players behind Cristiano Ronaldo, Ali Mabkut and Lionel Messi. So that gives you an idea of the calibre of Sunil Chetri. He's the most capped player in Indian football history and also the all-time top goal scorer for his national team. That's 119 games and 74 goals. But he's never actually really come across to Europe. It hasn't worked out for him, uh, despite interest from Leeds United uh, and a time where he actually signed for QPR, but then was denied a work visa. He's had failed moves to Sporting Lisbon and Kansas City, um, but pretty much all of his career has been played in the Indian leagues, where he's been a bit of a journeyman. He only surpassed 50 games for a club in 2016, playing for Bengaluru. Um, So whereas on the international stage, he's been the main man, on the club stage, his career's been a little bit disappointing, to be honest. In 2005, Chetri donned the national colours for the first time, and FIFA had ranked India at the time as 131st, um, just behind the tiny kingdom of Eswatini, which is in South Africa. Um, And for additional perspective, that was also several slots ahead of the Faroe Islands, uh, which has a grand total of 45,000 citizens So for India to be that low in the rankings shows you, to be honest, how little they care about football. But they are now ranked 105th. So albeit slow progress under Chetri's leadership of the team, uh, they have certainly improved. It's caused me to do some research into football in India and why it's sort of never really taken off. And the fact of the matter is it's it's not really to do with facilities or anything of that nature. It's purely the fact that cricket is so dominant in India. People worship the likes of Sachin Tendulkar who have excelled in the sport that they love. And the rewards are much greater for cricketers in terms of advertising, sponsorship and salary. Whereas football is not a sport that the nation cares about. Marcus McGullio, Um, who is a sports journalist, he said, Chettery is in a category all by himself. As a player, he's made youngsters fall in love with the game. As a person, he's made the media take note. He's the face and voice of Indian football. He's inspired a generation and given us hope. But even still, it seems like India are a long, long way off becoming a football power that's going to qualify for a major national tournament. So, I think Sunil Chetri's been the poster boy of Indian football for the last kind of 10 to 20 years, but to little effect, really.
0: It's incredibly surprising to see, and perhaps a true hallmark of a national icon, someone whose club career is is all right, but considering the level he's playing in India, not particularly good. But internationally, he was phenomenal, or he is phenomenal, still going particularly in 2011, when he scored 13 goals in 17 games. I'm not sure in terms of the standard of those international games, whether he's playing against slightly weaker nations. But as you've said, India's ranking themselves is so low that it's quite a feat to have scored that many goals. When you look at the likes of Ali Dai, uh, Iran are one of the powerhouses of Asian football. And India aren't. So that really is a testament to how impressive his international goal scoring is.
1: I wonder if it's part of the marketing effort of the Indian national team that they've recently become a playable side on the FIFA video games. (laughs) It's always surprised me somewhat, given that they are 105th in the world, but somehow always managed to make it as a one star selectable team. Bizarre. So the final striker position, and as per usual, it's up for grabs. I've been in conversation recently with Chris Kelly, and Chris is a fantastic football writer and an expert on some niche nations, including Andorra. He writes about Andorran football, Uh, but he has also spent some time out in Zimbabwe interviewing some key figures out there about football, uh, and he's got a nomination for this team. I'm here to talk to you about a Zimbabwean footballing legend, an African footballing legend. In 1992, Peter Woodlove became the first African player
0: to feature in the Premier League, joining Coventry City and the likes of Mickey Quinn, Kevin Gallagher and Roy Wegerley. Woodlove was a quick, direct, skillful forward player, utilised either on the wing or as a striker. Football fans of the 90s will remember his drinking, unpredictable talents regularly entertaining us on match of the day as he left many a top defender in his wake. After playing for both Sheffield United and Birmingham City, Ulove then finished his career in his homeland
2: of Zimbabwe, where he is still very much idolised across the nation. Despite ongoing political tensions in the country, you won't find a more popular figure than Ulove,
1: Adored from Bulawayo to Harare, Oluw earned 81 caps for his nation, scoring
0: 37 goals and will always be a source of pride and inspiration to a football-loving African public.
1: Yeah interesting. I mean Benjani obviously is a name that springs to mind in terms of Zimbabwe and football but Peter and Lovu is a hero worshipped out there uh, and a favorite of Coventry fans too. A good nomination.
0: And as a Coventry City fan, our next contributor Mike Dunnett Stone will be thrilled about Peter's inclusion in the poll. Mike has founded Feasty, which in TikTok style allows you to have instructional videos on how to make some recipes with step-by-step
2: guides for each of those recipes. Mike has nominated a player. As a Coventry City fan seeking a national icon, I was very tempted to go for Michael Mifsud, the mini Maltese marksman who graced a sky blue shirt for a while, but... At the other end of the size spectrum sits a Trinidad and Tobago who never really sparkled at club level but turned up time and time again for his country. I reckon if you surveyed a load of football fans and asked them who's the top scorer for Trinidad and Tobago, so many would say Dwight York. But here are some cold hard numbers. Dwight York has 19 goals in 72 games for his country. Stern John hit 70 in 115. A truly astonishing conversion rate of a goal every 1.6 games, approximately double that of which he married, managed in his uh, club career, certainly more prolific than I remember him being at Cov. He is the highest goal scorer in all of CONCACAF ever. For his country, he sits above the likes of Ibrahimović, Drogba, Suarez, Eto, Rooney, Robbie Keane and at the time of his retirement he was the seventh highest international goal scorer of all time. It was always a Classic target man, a, a poacher in the box, and with a seriously powerful strike. For me, he's a he's a classic national icon. And to get a sense of his play, there's there's a really great video on the official YouTube channel of Trinidad and Tobago FC. It's called "The Goals That We Enjoyed," and it's a 25-minute highlight reel that, for about 10 minutes, is purely Stern John banging them in from close range. And for me, that sums it up. Stern John is my national icon nominee. What a shout from Mike, a particular favourite of mine. I remember his two
0: goals in the great escape in the championship when Southampton beat Sheffield United. And I remember he was sent off for celebrating with his shirt off, uh, getting a second yellow card, which meant we had a nervy final few minutes. But
1: what a legend. I love it. I'm going to throw a name into the mix here, Arthur. T.T. Kamara. (laughs) Yeah, TT, TT, Yes. TT Kamara. Um, He'll be remembered perhaps fondly by Liverpool fans, perhaps less fondly by West Ham fans. And he was also a Guinea international. Uh, He was an all action, no nonsense striker. He's also coached the Guinea national team, in fact, and he became the Guinea sports minister. So he's had a huge influence on football uh, out in Africa. Titi Kamara was a stalwart of the Guinea team from the early 1990s until the 2000s. And he's regarded as a key protagonist in Guinea's return to respectability, really, in terms of African football. He played for his country in the 2004 African Cup of Nations, where he scored three goals in the group stage, meaning he just finished just one goal behind the leading scorers of the tournament. Out of interest, Bobo Baldé the Celtic defender was also in that Guinea side in 2004. I think TT deserves his place um, as a national icon for the reasons before mentioned, but I also wanted to um, relive this fantastic prank that he played on Liverpool fans on April the 1st, several years ago. He tweeted, yes, I am on route to Liverpool city centre before revealing I will be signing copies of my book in Greg's The Bakers at 1 pm. Each book will receive one sausage roll. So, several Liverpool fans turned up to Greg's, and it turns out that this was a prank. He didn't ever intend to go, and he's actually never written a book. Oh, gutting no. for those Liverpool fans. TT. I mean, such a joker, but also what a, a Guinea legend.
0: My nomination is Mario Frick.
1: Oh, <laughs> I love that.
0: Oh, what a player. He started his career at the youth team of a club from Liechtenstein, uh, which was FC Balzers, before <laughs> in 1994 playing abroad for the first time, this time with FC St. Gallen in Switzerland. In doing so, Frick became the first ever professional footballer in Liechtenstein's history. After further spells in the Swiss Super League with FC Basel and FC Zurich, he built a successful strike partnership with South Africa striker Sean Bartlett. Frick began catching the eyes of scouts from some of the best leagues in the world, including Serie A in neighbouring Italy. In the summer of 2000, Frick became the first Liechtensteiner player to play in another country apart from Switzerland, uh, signing for Arezzo in Serie C in his first season, he scored 16 goals in just 23 appearances, uh, attracting the attentions of Hellas Verona, who were in Serie A. He signed for them, and despite having to compete with a number of talented forwards, including Adelton, Alberto Gilardino, and Adrian Mutu, Frick established himself as the main centre forward of Hellas's 3-4-3 formation, scoring seven goals in 24 matches, Uh, Sadly, they couldn't avoid relegation, and Frick was soon off to Tanara in Serie B, where he would score 44 goals in four seasons, earning the nickname Mario Freak. (laughs) (laughs) He had a bit of a weird quirk. Every time he scored, he would reveal a white undershirt with the writing, La vie c'est fantastique, quando segna Mario Freak, which is a curious mix of French and Italian, translating as... Life is wonderful whenever Mario Frick scores. And I think it stems originally from a popular song in Italy. So fans were absolutely loving that throughout his career. In all, he scored 190 league goals in his career and made 125 international appearances. Under Frick's guidance, they achieved some truly unthinkable results, like the wins over Azerbaijan, Luxembourg, Latvia or the valuable draws with Slovakia, Iceland, Montenegro, and most notably Portugal. Considering the context, Mario Frick's achievements internationally of 16 goals in 22 years is more than outstanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of his sons also, as a little, little bit of side information, is called Noah Zinedine Frick. <laughs> which wow. I quite enjoy. I'd like to finish with an excerpt from... An article from Franco Fitchatola, who wrote an article in The Gentleman Ultra, and said this, If I were to argue that Mario Frick has been more influential for Liechtenstein than, say, Francesco Totti for Italy or Andriy Shevchenko for Ukraine, you may think I was crazy. Arguably, however, never has there been a player so iconic for a whole country, especially as small as Liechtenstein, than Mario Frick. We can only imagine what it meant for other Liechtensteiner players to represent a nation side by side with someone who'd played against Alessandro Del Piero, Andrea Pirlo and Zlatan Ibrahimović. So it was that experience that he brought to the Liechtenstein team. He stands head and shoulders above anyone in terms of ability that that nation has ever had. And so he fully deserves to be considered as a national
1: icon. A wonderful nomination. Head over to Twitter at 11pod uh, and you can decide who the final striker is in our National Icons 11. So a few names which narrowly missed out on the 11 national icons in their own right. Uh, I wanted to give a mention to Ulysses de la Cruz, who is an Ecuadorian legend who has spent a lot of his money that he's earned through football giving back to his country, which I think is a great thing. Uh, and also a brief mention to David Healy who I imagine is pretty sick to the stomach seeing Northern Ireland qualify for major tournaments since his retirement. But he scored some fantastically important goals, I seem to remember, in qualifying rounds. Uh, So good to give him a shout.
0: And some big, big, well-renowned names that we've missed out who starred for smaller nations. We've got Roger Miller, Mm. uh, George Ware and Obedee Pele as well. But I'd also like to give a shout out to Mikel Leggettwood, a former Reading player, played for Antigua and Barbuda, which is an incredibly small nation. And just the idea of a nation like that possessing a player of the quality of Leggettwood is, is interesting, albeit perhaps not a national icon, as he only made 11 appearances for them.
1: Love the fact that we got Mikel in. So this is our National Icons 11. In goal, Mark Poom of Estonia. At the back, Roy Cipollina of Gibraltar. Ryan Donk of Suriname. Radi Jaidi of Tunisia. Across the midfield, it's Omar Abdul Rahman of the UAE. We've also got Lorik Kanna of Albania. We've got Javed Nakunam of Iran. Uh, and on the right-hand side, Kobe Jones of the USA. And up front, Sunil Chetri of India, Marians Pahas of Latvia, and the final place is up for grabs. Thanks very much for listening.